Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. That was Tina Brown's pick for a cheesy song. <laughs> Tina Brown, A+. Plus. Yeah, I love it. You know, Madonna's material girl takes me back to those Vanity Fair covers with Madonna where we just did her so many times, photographed her, you know, in her height of her material girl glory. Oh, my Lord. Uh, Tina Brown is here to talk about the Vanity Fair Diaries during a story time in American history, 1983 to 1992, filled with uh, excess and insanity and everything like that. Tina, thanks so much. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. So here you are, a, a proper British woman, plopped into this New York scene. And uh, by the way, our producer says your accent is awesome. <laughs> Uh, what were you? What was the best part about being in that, and the worst part for you? Well, the best part was being, you know, scarcely out of my twenties, given this amazing assignment of turning around this big, affluent, glossy magazine. Even though it was in dire straits when I took it over, it was still had only place to go was up. You know, in Condé Nast magazine, which was like glossy headquarters of like the happening scene. And just being a newcomer from England, just completely blown away by the kind of crazy excitement, in a sense, of the 80s with, you know, everything from Miami Vices to my Madonna to the Reagan White House, Diana dancing with John Travolta. It was a hell of a glamorous time for a young woman coming to the U.S. What was difficult was being a young woman, you know, who who had to kind of negotiate the snake pit of media culture, the kind of misogyny of the business world, the, the, the sense that I, then when I had my two children was the hard part was just balancing my tremendous love of my career with, you know, the need to be and the desire to be a, a good mom, you know, which was always a, t- a tug and a tussle, as, as every working woman knows. And certainly in these situations with the the rich and the famous and uh, the entitlement culture, what kind of things did you have to do to keep your values intact when there were so many things going on around you that may have seemed so amoral? Well, it's interesting. You know, reading the diaries, I am continually always the outsider. You know, I... I never lose my sense of who I am. And and that's partly because I was married to, and I'm married to, an enormously grounded man, uh, Harry Evans, who was a, a great newspaper in the UK. And our family, our children, was always the kind of the moral center of my life. So that even though the world of the week was a big, dazzling kind of uh, black tie world, at weekends we would withdraw to our house uh, in Long Island and just be with the children. And I had a premature son, and I had to really... Uh, pay a lot of, uh, of of care and attention to because he had turned out he had Asperger's syndrome. So being, I think, the mom of a special needs child really kept me grounded, actually, and always has. Now, uh, according to the information we received, one of the things that uh, happened for you that was kind of a break was when you got to go to the White House to work with uh, Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And in 1985, I would imagine that in the magazine world, there may have been 
not a great love for these two individuals. How did you approach going into that, knowing how great an assignment it is to go to the White House, right? But knowing also that people, regardless of how it turned out, may be critical of you. Well, you know, the interesting thing I felt about the Reagans is it didn't matter which side of the aisle you were. There was one thing about the Reagans everyone could agree on, which was they had an extraordinary relationship. Their marriage was the one aspect of the Reagans that you could agree about, that there was something about the dynamic between these two these two people, which was sort of magic. So that's what I wanted to capture when we went to the White House to interview them and to, uh, to photograph them. And I took with me an amazing photographer, Harry Benson, who's photographed many a president before. And he did this brilliant thing of bringing with him a tape of Na- Frank Sinatra singing Nancy with the Laughing Face. And he set up a white screen uh, in a room that was adjacent to the, the state dining room where they were about to go and have a big black tie state banquet. And as uh, the Reagans kind of approached in their kind of long dress, Nancy in her black, uh, you know, Adolphus gown, Adolfo gown, and him in a black tie, etc., they came to the door and we heard them sort of talking. And, Nancy, uh, and Ron, uh, Harry Benson hit the boombox. We played the, the Frank Sinatra. And the two of them started to, Nancy said to Ronnie, uh, that's our song. We have to dance. And they they started to foxtrot together against this white screen to the Frank Sinatra. So, of course, you know, Harry Benson was leaping up and down with his camera, taking these pictures, and he was a very excitable Scotsman, and he, he was saying, Ah, Mr. President, Mr. President, you've got to kiss your wife, give your wife a kiss. And uh, Ronald Reagan leant towards Nancy, and they did this great green smooch together. It was like a classic Hollywood, like uh, Into the Sunset photograph with the two of them kissing. And it became known as the Reagan kiss. It went all over the world, this picture of the two of them dancing and, and embracing as they did. And, you know, it, it brought a kind of joy. And it was, I remember thinking as they, as they did this, wow, this is not just the Reagan kiss. This is the kiss of life for us. Because I knew that this cover, this photograph, this session was going to be so commercial, frankly, for Vanity Fair, which it was. When did something go really bad? <laughs> oh, there were constant cover debacles. There was a, when when things went really bad was when I was when Cy Newhouse, the owner, uh, was thinking very hard about closing the magazine, and he decided he was going to close the magazine. And I learned about it on a, an advertising trip. I was out of town, and I suddenly heard that we were not allowed to hire anybody anymore. Which, of course, you all know what that means. It means that you're going to close. So I went absolutely crazy, and I flew back on the red eye and confronted him. And I said, I know this is happening. You know, we, we, I first of all got my publisher, the advertising guy, to go in and do his, the big sell of his life. And then I show up in the morning, you know, on the red eye, and I said to him, you know, I want to tell you, we have these three incredible stories coming. And I showed him, you know, the, the Reagan cover. I, you know, there was a great piece that I had in the works about uh, Princess Diana because I broke the news that uh, there were, actually the marriage was, was, was a disaster. And then the third uh, amazing piece was Dominic Dahn, our star writer's coverage of the trial of Klaus von Bülow, the accused murderer. These were incredible stories for the magazine to have. And he said, okay, you've got another year, which I knew meant another six months, because <laughs> that's the way he was. But we turned it around in that time. Within, within that year, we became number one on the hot list of magazines uh, for, the, for the kind of biggest growth that anyone was seeing. So we did turn it around, but it was all about the stories. And most certainly the the story of uh, Princess Diana is one of, you know, great hope and then great tragedy. And forget it. I, some people, I think, forget, Tina, these, at the end of the day, here's a human being. Absolutely. And the, the pressures that this uh, young lady felt to be in this 
spotlight were so yeah. tremendous that they they led her to have all kinds of behind the scenes problems. I mean, well, I think you know what's staggering today as we see uh, the, the the sort of joy about Meghan Markle is to one thing to consider, which you know really was very strong in my piece in Vanity Fair, and we you can read in the diaries about how that whole story uh, and, and my information really about the marriage came about. But you know she was. Meghan Markle is the same age that Diana was when she died, okay? Diana was 36. And when she married Charles, she was 20. And I think, you know, somehow what got lost at the time was that this was a child, you know, really marrying into the House of Windsor. And, you know, it was a child going into this very stuffy royal household who then had the celebrity of a Britney Spears. I mean, all of the pressures on Diana were intense. And... uh, you know, that's really what the piece that I ran, which I called The Mouse That Roared, because it was about a young, sweet little English rose who turned into this huge kind of diva global force, in a sense. Uh, the great transformation that she was forced to, 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 to have in her, in her whole persona to, to, to cope with it all. Did you have the urge to protect her? I felt badly for them both. Actually, at the time, I also felt badly for him, quite honestly, because mm-hmm. I felt that Charles had been sort of pushed into this by his parents, and he was in love with somebody else. He was in love with Camilla. So it was a tragedy for them both. Now, during the course of your career, you obviously had um, working relationships with Harvey Weinstein. Did you suspect during your working relationships that uh, he was doing terrible things behind the scenes? Did people talk? No, he was doing terrible things in business, which is what I saw. <laughs> and uh, I got out of there. I mean, you know, he, he finally closed. I, I, start, I started Talk Magazine with him, which was probably not the wisest career move I ever made after leaving The New Yorker. And I almost, from day one, I went to work for him. I thought, oh, my God, I've made the most titanic mistake here, getting into business with this guy, because of the way he treated people and treated me. You know, he, 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 he's Jekyll and Hyde once he thinks he has you. And uh, he was abusive, he was profane, he was dishonest. So he was a terrible guy. I did not know that on top of all of that, behind the scenes, he was also this wild, you know, psychopath when it came to sex. I mean, I'm just stunned by by the extent and the depravity of what he was doing. I mean, it was just amazing. I imagine with some of these individuals, though, the power is is so much of an intoxicant that they really feel that they can do just about anything they want to anybody. That's right. He was drunk with his own power. And, you know, the, um, the difficulty for everybody around him was that, you know, this, the, the Jekyll and Hyde part was that actually he made very good movies, you see. So it was a very strange thing. It's not like this very gross and horrendous individual was making gross and horrendous movies. I mean, he wasn't. He was making beautiful movies like Shakespeare in Love and, you know, The English Patient and all of these great films that were very beautiful, sensitive films, right? And he was he was actually, though, the exact opposite. You know, he was this terrible guy. So all of these actresses, I mean, you know, they thought they were coming for an interview about a, a part in one of these wonderful films, only to find he, they were, you know, absolutely assaulted and uh, it, it's really an extraordinary story, and so is the story of how he suppressed it. I mean, I did notice, I did see how how incredibly uh, paranoid he was about the press and you know all of that. But you know, I mean, this all came later. We can we now know stuff we didn't know then. Certainly, you also have had tremendous insight to the president of the United States, Donald Trump, and mm-hmm. I think it's worth talking about your impressions of who he really is because he's being defined all kinds of different ways. In, in your opinion, who is Donald Trump? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. In my diary, he's both people, as he is today, two people, in a sense. I mean, uh, you know, when I first meet him in 1987 in the diaries, I describe how I first read uh, his book, The Art of the Deal, and decide to extract it and make a big splash in it in Vanity Fair. And I write in the, in, in, in the book, I'll say, I say, you know, uh, this book is BS, but it's authentic BS, uh, which is, you know, a, a contradiction in terms. But the point is, I said he's got a, gr- a very funny voice, a very candid, real voice that I think, you know, comes right off the page. And I say, you know, I think the American public will like nothing more, which was a kind of prescient at the time. And then I meet him at a dinner party shortly afterwards, and he's all over me, and he goes, oh, Tina, you know, I'm on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, what do you think of that, he said. You know, I'm, I'm uh, Time magazine. I could have had that. Or what's, what's better, Time or Newsweek? I said, well, I think Time. He said, well, I, you know, I, I definitely could have had Time, but I decided to go for Newsweek, and I've, I've sold, you know, it was this usual nonsense, really, in the sense that, he, that he's talked since, but it was very beguiling in a way. It was funny. It was fresh. It was, it was obviously nonsense, but at the same time, it was fun. Then as time goes by, it gets less fun. We start to cover him uh, as a business story and find that a lot of what he's telling our reporter, Marie Brenner, was in fact untrue, that you know, his portrait of his businesses was much rosier than the facts about his businesses, which were many of them in bankruptcies and so on. And, of course, the very uh, ugly divorce with Ivana. So all of this we covered as, as extensively as we had his successes. And he got very angry about that and, and uh, very abusive about it when we published it and became particularly angry because the author uh, of the piece wrote that he had a copy of Hitler's speeches in his office, which really caused a tremendous amount of news. And shortly after that, she's sitting at a benefit, and she feels something cold and wet in her back, and she realizes, as she looks up, it's Donald Trump. He's emptied a glass of wine down her her dress, Um, which kind of shows a little bit much more of the sort of, you know, the fight-back Donald Trump who will never forget a grievance. Were you stunned when uh, America went for this man? And, and do you think as time goes on, uh, America, because some people do admire him and, and some people uh, can't stand him, do you think that he will be to the American people, quote-unquote, less fun as time goes along? Well, it's very interesting. He is dropping in the polls, uh, but I think he has a base that seems just to be so fiercely antagonistic to liberals, in a sense, that they almost, every time he pokes the liberals in the eye, that's for them enough, it seems. You know, that the... Uh, you know, it seems like he takes a swipe at uh, something beloved, whether it's the environment or, or whether it's, you know, diversity of any kind, that uh, just uh, is almost done deliberately to anger that, that cadre of America. And uh, I don't know whether it will become old. You know, I, I, I do think America is going to get very tired of the drama. You know, at a certain point, people want to get on with their lives and their jobs. And, but, of course, the economy is doing very well. So who, who knows? I mean, it's, jobs are there and, and the economy is roaring along. So it's possible that we could re-elect Donald Trump. I have read The New Yorker since I was a teenager. I absolutely adore that publication. Oh, I good. think it's, it's so wonderful. I mean, everything about it, even if I you know, vehemently disagreed with what I read, I'm going to read it anyway because I find it to be very important. When you were given the opportunity to lead The New Yorker, uh, what, what kind of thoughts were going through your head about the history, the tradition, and maybe what you wanted to do to tinker with it? Because you know it is, um, even formatically, it's very similar all the time. Well, you know, when I, after turning around Vanity Fair, you know, and I was given the opportunity to then take over the editorship of The New Yorker, I first of all wondered, is this right for me? You know, I mean, Vanity Fair is a big top. It's like a marquee, a circus is the New Yorker, which was more of an ivory tower, going to be, you know, something that I resonate with. And I went back to the very first editions in the 20s, and I really found 
the magazine really did speak to me in that first incarnation, much more than in the later years. It, it, it was more newsy, it was shorter and longer pieces, it had a vitality and a pulse that I really did resonate with. And I decided I wanted to bring back that pulse to The New Yorker and open it up visually. You know, I added photographs for the first time, I completely revamped the covers and, and brought in wonderful, relevant, you know, more newsy sort of illustrations that, that, that bounced off the culture. And I had a, a, some amazing a whole new raft of writers who were every bit as great as the old, including David Remnick, the current editor, and Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote uh, The Tipping Point, and yeah. Jeffrey Tubin, who, of course, is now one of CNN's big commentators. So I brought in Jane Mayer, you know, who wrote the amazing book about the Koch brothers. So I, I really did refresh the talent pool, totally changed the visuals, and uh, kind of updated it for the uh, 20th century. How much do you love Roz Chast? I oh, love Roz Chast. I mean, she, <laughs> she, you know, there's so many people to love at The New Yorker. I, 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 uh, I appointed Bob Mankoff, the great cartoonist, to be the cartoon editor. He's so hilarious. The cartoon meetings were some of the most fun things that I ever did, except that you have to realize that cartoonists are also the most kind of curmudgeonly people of all. I mean, they're the ones who are <laughs> the gloomiest of people. The funnier they are, the more bad-tempered they are, and I learned that very early. Tina Brown, how much does uh, Absolutely Fabulous uh, appeal to you? <laughs> well, you know, my my world was more about, you know, stories and, and, and uh, journalism. But, yeah, there is a kind of – the Absolutely Fabulous world definitely was resonating around me at Condé Nast at the time. Yeah, it was. Uh, this is such a pleasure to have you on the show. You have no idea. You oh, were good. absolutely uh, wonderful, delightful. We loved it. The Vanity Fair Diaries, nineteen eighty three to nineteen ninety two. We wish you success. And uh, uh, how's your family doing? How are you? Oh, kids? we're great. My yeah? my kids are great. Um, everybody's great. Excellent. Thanks, All right. thanks for doing our show today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.